The AI Gov Reimagine podcast is brought to you by Google Cloud in collaboration with GovExec Studio 2G. The government AI revolution is here, and Google Cloud has the fast, scalable, and easy-to-use AI offerings agencies need to innovate, improve decision-making, and use data to its fullest potential. Learn more about Google Cloud's AI offerings, including AI platform, video and image analysis, speech recognition, and multi-language processing at cloud.google.com. In the fight against COVID-19, governments across the globe called on the most advanced healthcare technologies. Chief among these was artificial intelligence, which played a key role in tracing the vaccine and understanding its spread. As a result, AI's use in the healthcare field has advanced at a rapid pace, possibly compressing several years worth of digital transformation into just a few months. While the pandemic has spurred major AI advancements in the healthcare field, it's also underscored the need to continue advancing the technology. Grounded in the cloud, continued AI adoption and innovation can help ensure government agencies have the tools they need to handle the next major health crisis. In the meantime, it can also help improve patient outcomes and reduce costs for patients everywhere. One organization already reaping the benefits of these advancements is the Defense Innovation Unit. The organization partnered with Google Cloud to prototype an AI-enabled digital pathology solution that aims to improve predictive cancer diagnosis at select DoD facilities. I'm James Hansen, Group Publisher for Federal and Technology Markets at GovExec, and on today's episode of AI Gov Reimagine, we'll speak with Dr. Niels Olson, the DIU's Chief Medical Officer and originator of the Predictive Health Project, Google Cloud's Head of Defense Intelligence Sales, Scott Froman, and Senior Staff Research Scientist at Google Health, Dr. Craig Mermel. Together, we'll discuss the possibilities of AI in healthcare, DIU's undertaking around predictive cancer diagnosis, and how AI and augmented reality can move the needle on patient outcomes and cost. Thank you all for joining me. Thanks for having us, James. Let's start by talking about how the use of AI in public healthcare has changed over the last year. Scott, where do we stand now with AI when it comes to medical imaging? AI used to be this researchy, futuristic technology. It went through this unusual set of hype cycles in the early 60s through I'd say probably the late 80s. But back then, neither the data nor the computing power were available to get anything meaningful done with AI. Now, we have the raw ingredients. So take the compute platform, for example. Here at Google, we have this large distributed purpose-built infrastructure that we've made available to the world. We have a bunch of services that, as listeners know, like Gmail, Google Photos, and Search, that use AI to run. And they do that at scale, over a billion users each. That's given us at Google this uniquely deep expertise in AI. This successful AI at scale is what has enabled us to learn. In fact, today, we provide AI services to government and industry to use for their own purposes. So some services are useful if you're a data scientist or a software developer, if you know machine learning. But not everybody does. So some of those services are useful if you're an analyst, someone that doesn't know or care what hyperparameter optimization is. By the way, that's me. <laughs> this has turned out to be a great platform for organizations to solve their problems, oftentimes without Google. Now, in some fields like medicine, we have experts like Dr. Mermel here and large piles of clinical data that can be used to build an algorithm. With these technological underpinnings and all this wonderful data, we now have the ability to match or even exceed in some cases the diagnostic performance commonly expected in subfields of medicine. 
That's right. And I'll just expand on what Scott said, specifically talking about really the fact that over the last five years, in particular, in the fields of medical imaging, we've seen this amazing revolution in applying the advances in AI that Scott mentioned, as well as the technological capabilities that we now have available to us through tools like public cloud to really transform a number of different medical imaging specialties. And so these are in diverse specialties ranging from ophthalmology, radiology, dermatology, as well as my specialty, as well as Dr. Olson's, we're both trained as pathologists. And that's one of the focuses we'll talk about in the predictive health program. It's been a great privilege within Google that we've been very active in this field of applying AI to medical imaging from its very beginning. In particular, starting in 2016, we published a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, which is one of the top clinical journals, which showed how a deep learning algorithm we had trained could be used to detect diabetic eye disease using retinal photographs taken from patients. And we could do this with an accuracy that was on par with trained ophthalmologists. This work, in addition to showing internally at Google what was possible, is now considered one of the seminal papers. And it's really been amazing that over the last several years, the field has gone from basic fundamental research showing that AI can achieve expert level accuracy to the point where now when you submit a paper to the top journals, this is no longer even considered novel. So it's basically gone from a state of future technology to uh, routine that we can show AI's ability in a variety of different medical imaging subfields that it is capable of achieving expert level performance in pretty much any given diagnostic task. And I think the really important point is that a lot of the interesting hard questions in the field have gone from demonstrations in a laboratory or in silico setting to actually getting towards the patient. Because obviously the goal of all of this technology is to really try to improve the diagnostic and clinical outcomes for patients. But until we can figure out how these tools can be integrated into the clinical workflow and and demonstrate its ability to improve physician's accuracy and efficiency, we've not yet really demonstrated the potential of this field. And that's where a lot of the most interesting questions in the field, and particularly one of the focuses of the predictive health program is squarely centered around that question. How do we get AI from the lab, from the cloud, and into the hands of the physicians and patients that can benefit from it? Dr. Niels, given the transformation the healthcare space has gone through in the past year, what has it been like at DIU for the predictive health project? and ensuring that that is moving forward? I'm a pathologist, so learning how to work with the acquisition system has been fairly interesting. Learning how to work with all the partners on this project and all the partners working together. So it's been a great opportunity for the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center and Defense Innovation Unit to work together, learn each other's rails, as well as learning some of the capabilities of our partner organizations, such as Google. And I think we've gotten some really good work done. We've got some good things coming down the pipeline that I look forward to talking to when they're ready for disclosure. But it's been really exciting to work with the teams and see all the things they've been able to deploy. We've got uh, systems out in several military treatment facilities and two VA facilities, multiple pathologists at each facility getting exposed to these things. And people are starting to think of how to use these things on their own and pitching their own research ideas around how to use these. So it's been really exciting and rewarding opportunity. That's great. And how have you seen medical technology and specifically medical imaging advance during your overall tenure at DIU and previously really your two decades at the Navy? So 
God, 20 years ago, I think radiology was still being digitized. So seeing radiology develop has been helpful and pathology has followed their lead. And then I think the biggest breakwater moment has been in 2017 when the FDA approved whole slide imaging for primary diagnostic use. So that really opened the doors for a lot of people to start thinking about how to use this in their systems. We had started work on a predecessor project back in 2016, I suppose. And so I think it was helpful to be in early and get things moving. The fundamentals haven't really changed, but the execution, I think, is accelerating. Craig and Scott, what is AI's efficacy in the pathology and medical imaging field? And what would the use of Google Cloud AI solutions be able to achieve in the long term? And then how did Google Cloud's relationships with the DOD make it possible to advance this work? For pathology specifically, before I get into the details of our solution, I just want to point out that we're in the midst of a growing demographic crisis where for the last decade, the number of pathologists that have been leaving the workforce has been occurring at a faster rate than the rate at which we're training new pathologists. And this special shortage is happening at the same time that the demand for pathology is increasing faster than ever. Of course, cancer rates and diagnoses continue to rise and the complexity of the workflow that pathologists are expected to perform is also increasing. So we have an important mismatch between the number of pathologists and the specialization of physicians on the one hand and the need for this complex and important field. So as with other medical specialties, we believe that AI represents an extremely promising tool that can help fill this gap. And it can do that in a number of ways. It can both take existing work pathologists and make them more efficient so that they can handle more cases and do that with fewer diagnostic errors. We also think that AI is going to be able to provide them with powerful tools that just don't exist today to be able to improve on the state of the art and provide more objectivity or diagnostic discrimination than the existing state of the art. And for the past several years at Google, we've been at the forefront of research demonstrating exactly where and how AI can help with tasks like these. We focused on problems ranging from things that pathologists can do, but that they would find very time-consuming, like finding small bits of cancer in very large specimens. So that's a task that pathologists do, but it can take them quite a bit of time. So we think that in that case, AI can help speed up their workflow by showing them instead of having to review 20 slides to find the cancer, we can show them the, the one slide that has cancer first and hopefully save them time and mental effort for harder and more challenging tasks. We've also shown that AI has the potential to help with particularly challenging or subjective tasks, in particular focusing on grading of different types of cancers, including prostate cancer. That's a task that pathologists have to do routinely, but there's quite a bit of subjectivity, and we've shown that AI can potentially help them do that more reproducibly and efficiently and in a way that we think will help lead to better treatment for patients. A lot of this research was actually done under a cooperative research and development agreement that was signed a few years back between Google and the Naval Medical Center San Diego. Together, we've actually digitized hundreds of thousands of de-identified pathology specimens that were older than 10 years old, and we used that data to train, validate, and then publish these algorithms in scientific research. And so 
while we're really excited about the potential of this technology, really one of the important points, as I mentioned in, at the top, was the key question is how can we get this technology into the hands of the pathologists that are actually treating the military service men and women whose data helped win and to help train these algorithms. And that's been one of the primary motivations with which we've entered the predictive health program. How can we take these algorithms and the technologies that we've built over the last several years and work with the Department of Defense to actually move Craig, I want to focus on that just for a minute. The technology is cool. It's game-changing. In fact, in this case, it's life-changing. But what we found is that technology alone isn't enough to have these kind of impacts that Craig's talking about. He talked about the work with NMCSD, the Naval Medical Center of San Diego, which was pivotal in getting us to the point where, where we could work together. You've got two entities here. You've got Google and you've got the Department of Defense. That to the casual observer, wow, those are really different. One's smacks of... Agile innovation, Silicon Valley, and one smacks of large-scale programs, complexity, solving challenges that can afford very little risk. But it turns out there's actually been a lot of work together between us. Google has a long history of supporting the Department of Defense. In fact, our work with that predates me, and I started with Google over 11 years ago. We've even grown our team just in the last three years, supporting the department several hundred percent. And this work to us is important. It's helpful for readiness, for the Department of Defense's readiness. But it goes far beyond that. Improved detection of cancer has the ability to positively impact the lives of our men and women in uniform, not to mention their families. And cancer is one of those things that it doesn't know bounds, right? It's not like, oh, this is a military person. I'm going to act and behave differently than for a non-military person. So the ability to solve cancer is even beyond the walls of our Department of Defense. It's a worldwide thing that we can have this wonderful impact. And the ethos of Google is, is one of helpfulness. We aspire to create things that improve the lives of people, and we do that through innovation and information, and this program just fits squarely in that. It is a disease that knows no boundaries, so this is really exciting. Niels, why was the DIU interested in pursuing the Predictive Health Project? So the DIU is focused on bringing in commercial innovations to the department. That's why we're positioned in Silicon Valley. That's why we were set up by Ash Carter when he was the Secretary of Defense back in 2016. And we're now celebrating our fifth year in the space. We've had a small budget ourselves, but have increased that many times over with uh, support from our mission partners. So our mission partners are seeing that what we do matters and has positive impact for their mission areas. For Defense Health, this has been an interesting opportunity to see what can be done. And we have pushed a number of developments within the Defense Health Agency, including their cloud stack, as well as thinking through how Many of these projects need to be built out. What are the requirements for digitization, annotation? What are those pipe? Getting the people involved to start thinking through what these next generation requirements will be, which are really this generation requirements. We're obviously already doing this stuff. So predictive health in particular, the military spends about $5 billion a year on cancer care. So if you can save a small chunk of that, that probably pays for the R&D costs pretty quickly, as well as, like you said, and like Scott said, costs are not borne by the military, they're borne by all of humanity. So the DOD can solve a problem that helps the entire federal government, the entire U.S. population. That becomes a net win where the government looks at the DOD as a helpful partner in some of these adjacent spaces. This project has enabled a number of other things to get started and open other people's eyes to what can be done in the Department of Defense, which 
some of those are easier to go into than others just because of the nature of our work. But I think the project net has been a tremendous value for the department. And how did it start? How did it come together? You mentioned trying to build out requirements and certainly the cost and obviously that the healthcare responsibility in terms of supporting our warfighters and even veterans down the road. How did it come together with, you mentioned DHA, was it something that you and DHA had identified as an area of opportunity? The Defense Health Agency was brought in as we were starting into contracting to understand where they would be able to support or where their efforts would fit in. I think that's been helpful. I'd say about 80% of DIU's projects are what we'd call pull projects, where there's a mission customer that comes to DIU with a need. This has been more of a push project where we have a new customer in the DHA and we are getting them to think through where other things are. That has led to them coming to us with new questions and issues. So I think it's been a well-invested early effort. You mentioned cloud and thinking through requirements. Can you tell us about the importance of cloud and when it comes to improving the accuracy of these diagnoses, assisting physicians who face this overwhelming volume of data in terms of making diagnostic and treatment decisions? The value of cloud should be separated from the AI bit. So the AI can be trained in the cloud. The military in particular is interested in AI that runs offline. So we actually have a system called Augmented Reality Microscope that has versions of these models deployed on it and actually runs completely offline. It's not connected to the network in any way. No patient data ever gets on the network from these devices. Not even pictures of their cells. Nothing goes there. For the development side of it, like Craig said, a large number of slides have been digitized, and those are available for training algorithms. The challenge with storage on site, particularly with medicine, is many of our data sets become very, very large. So genomics is a great example where you've got on the order of a terabyte per genome in a sequence by synthesis experiment that you might have that much in a large pathology case where the images are on the order of several gigabytes per slide, and you might have 40 to 50 slides in a case. So propagating that over tens of thousands of patients per hospital and north of 100,000 cases a year, you start ending up with large amounts of infrastructure. I think our projects have consumed fairly substantial amounts of data. And when we went to the chief information officer at NMCSD, he was just like, this is not a conversation you should even have with us. I don't know where you're going to get that, but it's not here. You go down the pathways of, of like first order infrastructure problems of power supply, cooling, just physical real estate to put this kind of stuff. It's just not there. So cloud was an obvious solution for the storage component. And once you have the data, you can start building models and you've got this background data that enables rapid iteration. And so what was the process of moving? Did all of that data in terms of obviously there's a lot of structured and tons of unstructured data. What was that process for getting that into the cloud? Craig's team can probably talk more to the details. We have full slide imaging systems that digitize pathology slides, and then those are transferred to the cloud. I'm curious about that. How is the program and project progressing from your perspective? 
I think the project has been going well. We have been hitting the deliverable wickets on time, if not early. We are in the process of running test and evaluation, so I don't have results of the testing yet, but the test plans have been developed and our partner organizations have been very supportive with making sure that their side of the deal is upheld, delivering models so they're available for testing. Scott and Craig, solving a problem like this certainly requires much in the way of coordinating technology and data, all while ensuring you're working hand-in-hand with government decision makers to create the most effective solution. How does Google look at solving a complex problem like this? A lot of government projects, in my experience, they have a program leader, and that person is adept in acquisition. They're great at project management. They can coordinate performers, companies, other parts of government to do things. But DIU and their partner, the Jake, or the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, they partnered together on this groundbreaking effort. They went far beyond that. They brought a lot more firepower to this program. So there is this team of warfighter health professionals working on this effort, and they're doing a bunch of other stuff as well. But at the helm of this is a doctor, a trained pathologist. And that's the guy right here in the podcast with us, Dr. Olson. And that's really important because... This problem is a lot more complex than the typical technology program that we see. There is a unique chain of technology and practice, and it starts with a specimen and paraffin wax. And there's this complex process of turning that physical sample into a digital representation. You have to de-identify the digital artifacts to ensure privacy. That De-identification is a fancy word for get rid of anything that has a name, a social security number, any identifying person that connects that to a patient, any information. And then we use vision AI techniques to build a machine learning model that understands the indications of cancer across different cancer types. And yeah, there's a different model for every different cancer type. Who knew that cancer was that sophisticated, that it looked different depending on where in your body it is. And to solve this and actually make it work, there's this unusual human factors component of fielding an algorithm on hardware in a way that's helpful to pathologists. It doesn't say, here, I've done your job for you, back off, but that's suggestive, that's useful. And all the folks that came together for this, all the organizations have really developed an innovative innovative approach to do this. So at Google, we're super thrilled to have brought this unique combination of scanning experience, expertise in pathology, data science, engineering, and of course, cloud, to make that data shine on our quest to improve the lives of humans. For us, when we think about taking a problem like this, it always starts with identifying the unmet clinical need or what's going to move the needle for for our stakeholders. At the very start, that meant a lot of engagement with with Dr. Bolson and his colleagues to make sure that the problems we were picking to focus on in this project were going to be things that were problems for military pathologists. It was a little bit easier because, as we said, our experience, the, the problems that the military pathologists are similar to many of the problems that are faced by civilian pathologists around the world. But we needed to make sure that the particular way we were going to approach this would make sense given the patient populations, the demographics, the, the criteria for where the actual end users were going to be. That starting there, and once we've identified the problem, the next focus goes to actually data set collection and curation. So we've mentioned that a few times that one of the unique challenges in pathology is that the material starts as physical glass slides often stored in warehouse facilities or in archive solutions in, in hospital labs. So we've been working, starting with our work in, in Mayo Medical Center San Diego to try to get that data to scanning facilities. The point you mentioned about how the data gets to the cloud, it does generate 
quite a bit of data. But the important point here is that the scanning process itself introduces delay. So we only need to make sure we're uploading data to the cloud at the same bandwidth that the machines are, are doing. And so because we have this additional step, it's not to say it's not a problem, but it's not the only problem that we face. We actually, our bandwidth constraint is limited by how quickly we can scan the data off the machines. Once that data gets to the cloud, we actually need to generate labels. And that requires us to engage very carefully with both the machine learning scientists, but also expert pathologists to make sure we understand the domain. And many of these projects require thousands of hours of pathologists' time to go in to not just take the image, but to draw annotations and labels to identify where cancer is or what grade it might be. All that then is the data set that becomes the input to training these machine learning algorithms, which can happen using, as Scott mentioned, some of the state-of-the-art AI techniques and capabilities that exist on the cloud already. And the last piece I just want to say, and Scott mentioned it briefly, is that once you have an algorithm, that's great. That's the starting point for a solution. But actually, in order to make it useful to pathologists, we actually need to work with understanding how we can present this information back to the end user. That includes technologies like what Dr. Olson mentioned, the augmented reality microscope. But actually, we need to go through and really think carefully about not just how the information gets blunted, but what information gets displayed And so we're working very closely and part of the focus of test and evaluation is to make sure that we're conveying not just an algorithm, but a solution that end users can use and that they'll be able to trust and make part of their workflow. So it really is end to end. Yeah, I think this is a tremendous example of a use case where you identify a problem, you work with all of the mission stakeholders to identify what the requirements are, you meet with those mission stakeholders, and then technology is enabling the outcome, which is truly a game-changing and life-changing outcome for both government and citizens. So to close this out, Scott and Craig, this type of advancement around AI medical imaging is crucial to medical progress. Can you talk through what is really needed in terms of data and innovation to continue this advancement? And I'd also be curious, how can this be replicated beyond DIU, beyond cancer, just for warfighters and veterans and being able to use this outcome and apply it in different areas? I think that we've been very fortunate through our partnerships and at Google to have access to tremendous, well, as Niels mentioned, that the size of these data sets are huge when measured in terms of terabytes of both underlying image data as well as associated annotations. And in many cases, we'd say we have sufficient data to actually train and validate that these algorithms work as they intended. Increasingly, I'd say the focus for us is to really go downstream and show value. So that means the type of data we're going to be focused on isn't necessarily just collecting more images or more labels, but to look at the outcomes of deploying this into clinical workflows. And that can be as simple as right now we'd be looking at how often does the pathologist use the information that's presented to them? How often did it help them render a diagnosis more accurately or confidently? How long did it take them? How, what does it do to their workflow? Ultimately, we want to go downstream. So what happens to the patients? Are the patients getting treated in a way that's more reproducible? And we would think in the long run, that should lead to better outcomes for patients. So that's when we talk about data, I think that it's not about more data, but it's going to be increasingly about measuring the kinds of data that will show us the impact of deploying these tools. 
The other piece that I just want to call out, and I think it's incredibly important as well, it's not necessarily just about the amount of bytes, but really the importance is making sure that we are capturing data that is reflective of the diversity of the patient population that are out there. So having more data doesn't necessarily help you. You need to make sure that that data is fair and and representative of the patients that ultimately are going to be benefiting. So as we go out, we're often looking for collecting data sets that are in either underserved patient populations, patients with rare conditions that might not have been seen during training and to the more types of environments and, and situations we can put in front of these algorithms, the more confidence we'll have that this technology can really be a tool for everybody and not just the patient populations in which it was you know, initially trained on. I just want to tap on the clinical trials issue again. First, as you said, there are clinical trials that need to be probably done around the AI. There is also a significant amount of interest in using the AIs for clinical trials of other interventions, because as Craig previously mentioned, it helps with standardization. So if you can provide a consistent answer for all the patients that are coming through a clinical trial, you have a more reproducible result for the clinical trial itself. So there's some interest there. The other advantage, I think the DOD, Department of Defense Health System brings to the table is that we have a U.S. national homogenization function. That is, we take people in from all walks of life around the country out to the Pacific Islands and expats, that we bring all these people in to recruit depots and then essentially randomize them and send them out to all sorts of other places around the country and around the world. So that gives us something that most other medical systems do not have. If you go to Boston, you're going to get a Boston flavor of the population. If you go to New Orleans, you're going to get a New Orleans flavor of the population. Even the VA, you're going to get a population that looks like older men who were in the military. The people that are in the military health system are a pretty clear cross-section of the U.S., That is so interesting. At Google, we spend so much time thinking about avoiding bias, but to us, it's usually skin color, tone, and gender, and making sure that algorithms are inclusive of all those things. And as a non-medicine practitioner, it's so interesting to hear that, yeah, that need to avoid bias happens at a molecular level like that. So to the question of making this scale, it's a big problem, and there's lots of different parts of government that have responsibility in the medical domain. We've talked about Jake and DIU, and there's also Veterans Affairs that Dr. Olson mentioned. There is the military treatment facilities across the country, which Dr. Olson has worked in. There is the Defense Health Agency, and there's more. I'm sure that I'm not even beginning to scratch the surface of all the different parts where this mission impacts. And a lot of it is making sure that we're benefiting from the resources and the capabilities and the data that all can bring to bear. Dr. Olson, to his credit, has been very participative. He's involved these other parts. It's not like, hey, I need to solve this all by myself here at DIU or just with the Jake. It's recognizing that there's a lot of other resources across government that can help. And we've seen a tremendous outreach. And I think that whole of government approach, James, is important to answer your question of how do we solve this in a bigger, better way? Teamwork is dream work. 
And I think this team has done a phenomenal job around this project. And I'm inspired to be able to sit here and hear the approaches that you guys have taken and agree. It is a complex challenge, but it sounds like this team is making some great strides there. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. Again, I want to thank all three of you. And I'd like to thank our listeners of the AI Gov Reimagine podcast. Be sure to check out our other episodes for more insight into how artificial intelligence is solving government's biggest challenges today and tomorrow. Thanks, Jane. The AI Gov Reimagine podcast is brought to you by Google Cloud in collaboration with GovExec Studio 2G. Learn more about how Google Cloud can help your agency reimagine AI to achieve the mission at cloud.google.com.